from us scripture we read together. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 23. We shall read again from verse 39. malefactors which were hanged railed on him saying if thou be Christ save thyself and us but the other answering rebuked him saying does not thou fear God seeing thou art in the same condemnation and we indeed justly for we receive the due reward of our deeds this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in Malefactors, of course, who turn evidence 
would turn king's evidence against other malefactors. But that is always with a view to purchasing for themselves a quitter, or at least alleviation of their sentence. But here, there was nothing like that to motivate the conduct of this man. He was already nailed to the cross. There was no possibility of any earthly gain. But the beauty and the glory of his conduct is this, that he has ceased to look to what death could give, and that and is absorbed in contemplation of what heaven may have in store for Now the first point of difference comes out here in the man saying, does not thou fear God? This man himself was not distinguished for his fear of God, nor his regard of man, for man. He was in many respects like the unjust judge who said, Though I fear not God, neither regard man, yet I will relieve myself of certain difficulties. This man did not fear God, neither did he regard man. He prayed on his fellow creature. He took anything that came his way and was not scrupulous in uh, the methods he adopted for what he had in mind. But it is this man who now mentions the fear of God. It is this man who asks his companion if he were still a stranger to this fear. And all the evidence, of course, goes to prove that his companion was dying as he had lived, fearing not God, nor regarding man. Now the penitent malefactor was sufficiently well acquainted with the results, the consequences of godly fear that he could see plainly that his companion was a stranger to it. He knew well that the malefactor who continued in his attitude of enmity towards the law was not and could not be under the influence of the fear of God. Here then we have the first principle of true godliness. The first principle, the fear of the Lord. Wherever that is lacking, there is and there can be no godliness. For 
the first response of our nature to God when we give him the place that is his, that is his in any measure. The first response we say of our nature is to fear him. Dost thou fear God? Dost not thou fear God? As if he had said, if you did, you wouldn't act the way you act. You wouldn't say the things you say. You don't have the fear of God. Now it didn't take long for this principle to work in this man's mind. Of course, he was in unique circumstances, circumstances that are unrepeatable. He was in a position that no other can be in. Nevertheless, we don't take it as something unique on his part to be so thoroughly and so suddenly brought under the fear of God. Luke, as you know, is the only one of the evangelists who record this incident. Others record the fact that Jesus was crucified between two malefactors, but they don't tell us about the penitence of one of them. Luke alone does that, and it would seem, taking up all the accounts we have in the Gospel, that the two of them began in the same way, wailing at Jesus. They came to the cross, they were nailed on it, and were beside the Son of God, and yet they continued in their attitude of wailing against all that is good, all that is pure, all that is of good report. He came to his deathbed in that manner, and, and, and a most uncomfortable and painful deathbed it was, if he may be called that. But the point is this, all of a sudden, without any outward change in the universe, without any visible means of accomplishing this, we hear from this most unlikely quarter mention of the fear of God. What has happened? What brought this about? Well, the Lord have made the Lord may have made use of means that were at hand, means of which we have not told, at least not told of them in the category of means. But whatever the Lord used, we know that this man has been suddenly brought face to face with the majesty of Jehovah. What a transformation. What a fundamental change. The greatest that can come upon a human being in this world. From a rebel, 
rebel against Jehovah and his laws, he comes to acknowledge and to submit to those laws. Now without this view, without these thoughts of God, it is utterly impossible to have the fear of God in one's heart. Does not thou fear him? He could now assess and appraise his past life. He could view things as he had never viewed them before. But the distinguishing factor, the characteristic element in this situation is that he not only assesses and appraises in his life differently from what he used to, but that he assesses and appraises it in the light of the divine law. In the light of God's face. In the light of God's demands and requirements. He not only had a different view of things, that is true of many, who never come as far as the penitent malefactor came. What distinguished his train of thought was this, that it was cherished in the light of God's demands, God's requirements, and hence he could write of all his life, not only as a miserable failure, but as one long catalogue of sin upon sin, treasuring up for himself wrath against the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Not only was his life useless, without any profit, but it was one long stream of guilt and sin. And now he realized that the God whom he was to meet, he had flouted, he had um, rebelled against, he had turned away from all the days of his life. Perhaps it wouldn't be too much to say that the pain of his body with the spikes driven into his hands and feet that that physical pain was nothing in comparison with the mental agony the mental anguish he experienced as he viewed his life in the light of the righteousness of God. (coughs) 
many saints have testified to the fact that even when they were wrought with physical pain, it was as nothing compared with the pain they had of realizing how much of a failure they had been. Dougal Buchanan says in one place that he remembers an experience in which he was brought near unto death. And before that experience, he says, he had been greatly tempted, and the temptation had to a degree succeeded. When he was overtaken with this illness, he says that although he was suffering pain unutterable, it was as nothing compared with the thought of his having so far fallen away from what he ought to have been. And if that were so in the case of a saint, how much more, at least in one sense, was it and is it so in the case of a malefactor coming face to face with God's righteous judgment on the very verge of eternity. And he surprised Matthew at the attitude of his companion. Does not thou fear God? As if he had said, are you still continuing in your impenitence and God's defying attitude? We have seen it often happen that when those who were careless concerning the things of the Spirit were brought under the influence, the saving influence of the Spirit, expressing surprise at others that they didn't see things now as they saw them. It is a great surprise to those who have the fear of God in their heart, and especially when they first come under the power of that principle, to see that others are wholly unconcerned about it. Does not thou fear God? He expresses this thought as if it were a great surprise to he is judging, of course, his companion by his own thoughts. And that, of course, is what we always do. As if he had said, the change that has come over me surely has come over you too. You cannot continue in your attitude of godlessness in your present circumstances. Surely no impenitence can go as far as that. That is the way he argues. And probably he thinks, as others have thought, that he may be able to influence his companion even at this late hour. But it all goes for nothing. 
the heart of man is too hard to be influenced, at least to be basically influenced by anything but the almightiness of God. You have heard often and often about the Melanchthon, the friend of Luther, when he was converted himself, he says, I thought that I could make things so plain to everyone that they couldn't help but make the same charge as I had myself, as I had made myself. Everything was so plain to him that he thought he could just put it before others in such a way that they also would be influenced by it. But he says, it didn't take me very long to discover that old Adam was too strong for young Melanchthon. The heart of man in its enmity to God will not submit to anything but the power of God himself, the irresistible, the invincible power of him that is most high. Does not thou fear God? Dare you appear in his presence, still armed to the teeth against him? Why do you age? Why do you imagine vain things? As this is true of people collectively, it is true also of people individually. Man rages against God. He imagines vain things. He thinks he'll be able to cast God's bonds from him. Now, nothing could be less, nothing could be more unwise than this. Imagining vain things, raging against the Lord and his anointed. He railed on him. And of course he also had something to say. He had his own contribution to make. If thou be the Son of God, save thyself. And us. He is still taken up with material things or earthly things. The only salvation he can think of is salvation from his present circumstances, salvation from the cross. If he could only get away from that, he would have all that he desired. Save thyself and us. And that is what he means by salvation. Get us out of this difficulty. Get us away from this pain. He's taken up holy with the things of the body, with the things of time, the things of sense. He doesn't see further than that. And why? Because his field of vision is limited by his unbelief. 
Steve Stoll is the son of God. Everything he says, everything he thinks, everything he does is circumscribed by unbelief. These are the bones that are set to all his thinking, all his assessment and appraisal of the situation. Unbelief. He didn't see that in the providence of God he had been given a place that none other had been given before and none other will be given after. This is an event that took place once and for all in the world's history. An event that will not be repeated. The Lord was once offered up. Bearing the sins of many. Yet he who was right beside him could see no relationship between the death of Jesus and the abolition of sin. He abolished sin by the sacrifice of himself, which is a very sobering and solemnizing thought. It doesn't matter how closely we are brought to the most important transaction. They will be lost to us. They will mean nothing to us. Unless our our eyes are opened to behold their meaning. And there is another point of difference still centering round this fact of the fear of God. The penitent thief had nothing that what the impenitent one had also. That is from the outside. The circumstances were exactly the same for the one as they were for the other. No eye could see any difference. No human eye could see any difference between the two. They were both in exactly the same condition, in exactly the same environment, in the identical environment, yet one ends up by being penitent and the other by continuing in impenitence. What then explains the difference between them? the difference, the explanation of the difference is not something that is visible to the physical eye. The explanation rests much higher than the circumstances themselves. The explanation lies outside of the normal field of observation. The explanation rests and is to be sought in divine sovereignty. 
How is it that the one is impenitent and the other not? Because, of course, the one was enlightened in a way the other was. Enlightened from above. And this enlightenment bore immediate results. He is conscious not only of God's righteous judgments, conscious not only of his deserving what has come upon him, that he is but reaping as he had sowed. The essence of the difference the essence of his enlightenment is this, that he is aware that Jesus of Nazareth is no ordinary criminal, yea, there's no criminal at all. And this, it would seem, is what goes straight to his heart. This is what he refers to when he addresses his fellow malefactor. Does not thou fear God? And what precisely comes to the forefront in that assessment of the situation? When thou art in the same condemnation with him. This is what surpasses everything else, not only that he was condemned, that he, the penitent, and also the impenitent, were both condemned, but that they were in the same condemnation with him. He is conscious of something unusual. He knows that something has transpired and is transpiring for which he cannot find an adequate explanation. Thou art in the same condemnation with it, but remember, remember this, we indeed receive the due rewards of our deeds. There is nothing strange in us being here. There is nothing strange in judge justice overtaking us. But, but this man, this man has done nothing amiss. Surely there has been a miscarriage of justice somewhere. Surely there's something peculiar, something awe-inspiring in this situation. We indeed justly, but this man has done nothing amiss. As if he had said, don't you feel in your very bones there is something mysterious going on right now. This man has done nothing amiss. 
and yet we are in the same condemnation with him and he is in the same condemnation with us. Surely this is a situation that calls for the fear of the Lord. What has happened? What has gone wrong? How is it that he who has done nothing amiss is in the same condemnation with us? It would seem that his mind is feeling after an explanation. He is confronted with mystery. And of course this is the greatest mystery which has ever been enacted in this world. The greatest mystery. Now a mystery in the biblical sense of the term does not mean something that is in itself incomprehensible. Some would resort to uh, this is a mystery, meaning it cannot be understood. That's not the meaning of the, of the word mystery in the scripture at all. That it's his everyday meaning. Or oh, this is a mystery, something that cannot be explained. Well, when we talk of the mystery, of the atonement, for instance, we do not mean something that is utterly inexplicable. We do not refer to it as a mystery because of its depth and the fact that we cannot comprehend it, although all that is true. But the biblical meaning of the word mystery is something which God has revealed, which could not be known otherwise. It's a mystery. It is something which God has revealed. Like this man seems to be feeling after an explanation for the situation in which he finds himself. And governing this explanation, or regulating his very desire for an explanation, is the fear of God. What does this mean? Well, this is what it meant. That God the Father made him to be sin, him who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That is the mystery. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And no wonder this man, in as it were, going out for an explanation, finds the whole situation awesome. And he cannot understand how his companion is not conscious of the same atmosphere as he is conscious of it himself. Does not thou fear God? And thou art in the same condemnation with him. We indeed justly with this man. This man has done nothing amiss. There was indeed miscarriage of justice in, in all the earthly tribunals 
at which Jesus stood. But there was no miscarriage of judgment in the tribunal of heaven. And it is there it was decided that he who knew no sin should be made sin. From the eternal tribunal it is a work of justice and judgment and mercy and peace. From the point of view of earthly tribunals, both Herods and Pilots, it is the greatest miscarriage of justice of which history informs us. Because both judges affirmed unequivocally that this man had done no wrong. I find no fault yet. He is condemned to the most shameful, the most painful death imaginable. At what greater miscarriage of justice could there be than the judge declaring that he found no fault in the prisoner and at the same time condemning him to an ignominious and painful death. No, no greater miscarriage of justice is conceivable. Thou art in the same condemnation with him, but we justly, but this man has done nothing amiss. Now his thoughts both in relation to God, to the law of God, to the requirements of that law, and his relation to Christ Jesus crucified are basically different to that of his companion. The penitent thief, the penitent malefactor, sees things entirely different. How many things? All things. All things are made new. Why? Because he has new life. And in this light, he sees things differently. He sees everything differently. And therefore he cannot but rebuke his companion. This is the way he began. But he went further. He spoke to the other malefactor, but he spoke to more, he spoke to Jesus himself. When he had spoken as it were on behalf of Jesus, saying this man has done nothing amiss, then he speaks to him. He directs his speech to the one in whom he was supremely interested. Not for, not for a temporal de deliverance, not to be saved from the agony of the cross, but praying that the Lord would remember, remember me, 
when thou art come into or in thy kingdom, Lord, remember me. That is all I want. As Iliad said, if thou wilt remember me, have anything else will take care of itself. Give me but a word that thou wilt remember me. And then the agony of the cross, the physical pain endured, almost disappears. Give me but this hope that thou wilt remember me. And then it doesn't matter what happens, here and hereafter, if thou wilt remember me, all will be well. This is all he sought, but in that he sought all. And he wasn't denied that of which he asked. He wasn't denied the assurance that the Lord would remember him and that he would be with him that very day in paradise. He has no more to ask. Here ends his prayer. This is a man who has prayed but one prayer as far as we know. But the consequences of that prayer, eternity will not exhaust. This is all he wanted. Remember me, when thou art come into thy kingdom, and this is enough. Now in considering this, <coughs> which we are not considering just now, the prayer, let us remember the order in which this man makes known the transformation which has occurred in his experience. He first speaks of the fear of God. He then speaks of the sinlessness of Jesus. And he then prays to the same Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, remember me. Let us pray. Gracious one, do thou remember us with the favor thou bearest to thy own, and we pray thee to put thy fear in our heart as a principle of life. For the fear of the Lord is the principle of life to depart from the ways of death. Let please thee to enlighten us in the knowledge of that great and glorious and unique transaction accomplished once and for all on the hill called Calvary when he who knew no sin was made sin for a sinner that they might be made the righteousness of God in him Lift upon us the light of thy countenance and take away all our sins for the Redeemer's sake. Amen. Psalm 106.
ਸਾਲ ਸਾਲ ਦੇ ਲੇਟ 